constant growing of things unknown, drawing from the endless reaches of time. J- Jason. Jason. Yes. Yeah. Jason. Synesthesia to me is uh, it's a true definition of the mixing of the senses. What makes synesthesia exciting? It takes us all the way from just the mingling of the senses, all the way to metaphors, or even transcending the senses, where you are, are no longer constrained by the tyranny of individual sense impressions. Jason, what are you talking about? <laughs> Synesthesia, a movie podcast featuring Jason Mikhilich and Jim Hickox, begins now. Pull the I feel like I usually end up talking over you too much. Yeah. No, that's good. That's our I dynamic. I do feel like I do feel like there was a good year and a half where you you were a dude who I thought was real cool, but I didn't. But I didn't feel like I, I was cool enough to be friends with you. You had, you had like that uh, that like army jacket that said "Real Big Fish" on the back, <laughs> and it was two thousand one. You know, and I was like, "Whoa, that guy, cool guy." <laughs> Um, yeah, no, what, we met fall of 2001, I remember the first time I met you, I was in your, I was in your room, because I was friends with your roommate, um, and you came in, I think you were coming from a fancy dinner party, because you were in a fancy suit. Yeah, okay. And I think you said that you had been walking back from a dinner party, but the way you came in, (laughs) was you came in in a fancy suit, and you were like just drenched in mud from the waist down and you just walked in and said I fell in a hole <laughs> I was like nice to meet you <laughs> uh, yeah I had I had fallen in a hole I remember that I don't remember where I was coming from or why I was wearing a suit but I do remember walking because I was coming back from somewhere and I decided to go through the woods instead of along any of the footpaths. <laughs> it's a fine choice when you're wearing a nice suit. Yeah. In my, right. So in my mind now, it's become like a white linen suit, but I know it wasn't that. Oh, but let's say that. That story is better. Yeah. That in I my mind, you're like dressed like Panama Joe. Uh, I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in time and buy myself that suit. And, and and or it's uh, like seersucker, and you're dressed like a, a Louisiana congressman from that. Yeah, I'm holding a broken uh, mint julep glass or something uh, like that. Yeah, everyone else would gone down. I fell in a hole. I'll down to. I'll done down in a hole. I everyone else when they get a time machine is going back to kill Hitler, but I am buying myself a fancy suit. <laughs> I, why, God, why would you not, Hitler? What? Yeah. I spend, um, I would say, for for what actual like use value this has, I yeah. spend an obscene amount of time trying to figure out about killing how if you would I would kill if I ever ended up going back in time to kill Hitler, uh, how I would guarantee that I had money from. Like a normal amount of money for this era, uh-huh. but in bills and or other forms that would be accepted in the previous era. Because you can't walk in and say, here oh, is a 2010 $50 bill because it'll look like a cartoon sure. from space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they'll kill you. So I, I, <laughs> they I haven't actually like devised a way to make sure that it happens and again it's 
possibly the stupidest thing you could spend time doing, but I do spend time thinking about it. Just mug a guy. Just go back in time and mug a guy. Well, so there's that, but then you have to definitely find somebody who is carrying cash. And who definitely isn't your ancestor. Yeah, but also then you lose out on that sweet uh, time travel inflation exchange rate. Well, no, you mug a guy and then you you put his money in the bank. Right, but you're mugging him for his nineteen twenty one dollars. Yeah. So there's no. The whole point is to get the satisfaction of bringing back, say, like, gosh, a twenty dollar uh, bill. Like, what's a twenty dollar bill going to get me? A pizza? Sure. You know, I take that back to nineteen twenty one, and I can fucking buy Long Island. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought you were going back in time and then investing the money and just letting it accrue interest for a hundred years. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going back in time and living like a robber baron. I see. But just on the change in my couch cushions. I see. That's smart. It's smart, but you gotta find find the coins that are dated right, or at least that look right. Yeah, what you need to do is uh, find a coin collector and be like, hey, could I get all your old coins that aren't worth much but are still old? That's true. And so what I also need to do is just start carrying them around. Just in case you should fall into a time hole. Right, because I don't know how I'll end up going back in time. Yeah. Like, I know it's definitely going to happen, (laughs) but there's no way to know how or when. I would suspect I'm not going to have that much control over when it happens. Yeah, no, definitely not. Because if you did, you would have done it already. You want to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should find just just a bunch of old coinage. That's a very good point. That isn't worth much now. I bet if you looked on eBay, you could find a lot of 1920 quarters. If I really started working on it, I could probably get people to pay me to take their pennies away. Oh, yeah, that's true. You could just start a penny disposal business. Yeah, and then just... I wonder if I if I get a machine to sort out, sort them by date. Yeah. Almost definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds you know really hard, doing, though. You know what you could do though is just get a machine that restamps old dates on them. I can exclusively collect hay pens. Oh, that's. I don't think they yeah. made them after a certain point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good plan. And then just walk around with pants full of hay pennies. Just pockets full of cargo shorts with all your pockets stuffed with hay pennies. So just in case I end up going back to 1951. Yeah, because then you can be like, I'll take a newspaper, and they'll be like. 12 cents. You'll be like, here's 24 hay pennies. 12 cents? What am I buying? The newspaper <laughs> building? <laughs> I, how much is Becoming the publisher? <laughs> You're underestimating the benefit of time travel inflation. <laughs> <clears throat> Welcome to Sensija. Shinashisha. 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 I'm um, never ever once going to say that right, but I'm not going to change the title. Uh, what's what's the guy's name? Who the the guy that Christopher Nolan put plastic on his mouth? Uh, Bruce Willis. Um, well, no, in a movie, not in private. Uh, um, Tom Hardy. Oh, Tom Hardy. Um, which I forget what critic it was who who was talking about that movie and said, "How are you going to take somebody? How are you going to take Tom Hardy, <laughs> who has one of the most interestingly shaped mouths in cinema, That's and true. say, you know what? We're just not going to look at it the whole movie.' Yeah, I it agree is. with that. I mean, I haven't seen I, it. The third Nolan Batman. Mm-hmm. I, I watched on fast forward just to listen to Tom Hardy's uh, Bane voice. Oh, sure. With Alex. <laughs> Why would you want to shoot a man before you throw him out of the plane? <laughs> uh, it's funnier because I'm imagining Alex doing it. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm not enjoying you doing it, but like instead of imagining Tom Hardy, I was imagining it being Alex. And that's. <laughs> better than imagining it being Tom Hardy. Yeah, just holding his hand over his mouth like, Hello! Hello! I'll be your bane this evening. (sighs) Um. What happened to... Didn't he have a brother? Yeah, his brother is dope. (laughs) Is that true? I like his brother. What's his brother doing? His brother... Well, right now, I could... I don't really care what it is. His brother's making uh, Westworld right now. 
The television show. The television show, and I don't care about that show. Um, sure. It's very good. Uh, but before Westworld, he did a little thing called Person of Interest. Are you familiar with this? It's also a TV show? Also a TV show. I've heard of it. I don't know it. Uh, Person of Interest mm-hmm. is Jonathan Nolan okay. making a TV show uh, that is basically Batman, okay. except... Batman is Jim Caviezel in a suit. Okay. Talking like this <laughs> all the time. Just the world's angriest man. And uh, Michael Emerson, I want to say his name is, plays mm. this uh, scientist in glasses who built uh, an artificial intelligence that can basically predict when violence is going to happen by watching everybody and their patterns of behavior and sure. uh, et cetera. So it's like, basically the whole idea is like it was built after 9-11 to stop another terrorist attack and the government wanted him to just dump all the information that wasn't relevant to national security and he's like, but those people are people too. So then he secretly hires a vigilante to, to you know, and it's a very traditional like TV show where it's sure. every episode they get a new number from the machine of who to save and sure. Jim Caviezel has to go out there. But it's slowly... So it starts out very much like CBS Dad Show, mm-hmm. and over time it slowly becomes something else. Oh. So, like, first of all, it's a CBS Dad Show, but with Jim Caviezel, who's a mm-hmm. really intense, weird actor. Okay. Um, who, you know, like, just really plays this, like, tortured ex-CIA, angriest man in the world, <sighs> you know... I'm going to show them what a real monster looks like. <laughs> like kind of like shaking while he walks with a rifle. Yeah, okay. um, but then the show becomes, it changes from like an NCIS, you know, CBS dad show, like, you know, save a person a week show and becomes this really involved, essentially like prequel to the Terminator. <laughs> Oh, weird! Like, because the AI, because it like it takes the question of AI really seriously after a sure, while, sure, and it starts to extrapolate out all of these, you know, these situations, and it becomes this whole other kind of epic science fiction show. But the beauty of it is, it never stops being a CBS dad show. So they do this ongoing. Uh, you know, intricate espionage science fiction story that just starts with the basic premise of like, oh yeah, the government watches everything you do. The entire world is corrupt. Like that's our premise for this CBS show. Now sure. let's go on from there. But at the same time, they're still like getting numbers and saving people and talking <laughs> like they're like these, you know, in these sort of like superheroist-ish lines of dialogue. And it's it's this beautiful tension of forms and it's super entertaining i totally loved it that sounds that sounds enjoyable yeah so the better nolan brother by far (laughs) of all the nolans um uh uh, that's what jonathan nolan has been doing john and now he's making westworld who gives a shit who gives a shit So do we, do we want, what do we want to, what do we want to do? Well, (laughs) I am interested in following up on the last episode. Yeah. And either recording more things to cut into it, or possibly it's, it's been occurring to me. Yeah. That the theme of the entire podcast Mm-hmm. might just be us trying to understand what other people think are that good and bad. will probably be a, a runner, yes. Um, so even, and, and trying to explore how it is we interact with movies and whether it is like worth, worthily uh, quirky <laughs> or idiosyncratic yeah. is the less obnoxious way to say that. Yeah. Um, or, or if we or could if just stop. If, yeah, if we're, if we're just doing it wrong. Because <laughs> there is a, f- a decent chance that we're just bad at watching movies, Jason. It's possible. I would say it would be one thing just to dismiss, like, the vast public. You can have an argument over whether or not you should do that, whether sure. it's elitist or whether you should really be paying attention to populism in art and blah, 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 blah. Um, but even setting that aside, individual people who I think are good smart people who yeah. like other things that I like, 
who I can have good conversations about art with will see will see things and think it's good. Yeah. In a way that I don't I disagree with it, but even more than disagreeing with it, I'm baffled. Agree. I was just having this conversation with Lucy. Yeah. Uh she's in the other room watching Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh nice. Uh because she never goes to bed. Um <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I, have you seen that? I saw about six minutes of it. Yeah, that's about as much as you would need to see. Yeah. And I was like, oh, um, those teeth are funny. I think the teeth are a really good choice. The teeth are a good choice. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes it so we can't talk, which is always... It's good to put <laughs> obstacles, I think, between your actor and the audience. Um, and, and I think between putting an obstacle between your actor and achieving a basic activity that everyone does all the time is ideal. Well, it's the two things that Brian Singer borrowed from Christopher Nolan was putting an obstacle in front of one of his main actors' ability to talk clearly. Yeah. Uh, like a physical obstacle and making every scene just exposition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I only saw a few. It was near the end. I saw a few minutes. And that's not true. You know, I like saw a few minutes and then I was in the other room while the movie continued. So I heard more of it. And it seems like there's roughly 20 minutes at the end that's just a they just do a whole concert they did like several songs at the end i'm yeah. sure i yeah i don't know um but everything that wasn't that was just people explaining what's going on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well cut like uh i don't know I, the editing in the scenes i've seen gives me a seizure like, is, like a seizure born of anger it's bonkers it seems like uh it seems like somebody shot sorry i should say the oscar winning editing yes yes sorry i mean in well here's, film, here's the thing in defense, of that editor, <laughs> in defense of that editor it seemed to me from what i saw like the coverage they shot was insane and they were like hey can you make this make sense and the editor was like no and they were like could you get to the end and the editor was like okay I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah get you no I, I i'm very careful to ever blame editors because sure, sure. you have no idea what was shot you have no idea what the director asked for. Oh, of course. Like, maybe the editor was in the booth saying, like, we don't really need to cut back to this guy four <laughs> times during the conversation. <laughs> because he's Singer's only like, saying no, one sentence. Do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe Brian Singer just really wanted to. Sure. I might, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that it's not so much that the coverage was bad, but that sure. Brian Singer is a bad director. Yeah. I, first of all, just top to bottom. Yes. But a bad and, director. And a bad human being. If, well, I mean, yeah. If well, that's the other Brian Singer. That's a whole other, <laughs> other, other thing of like, I, I'm sitting there, uh, and I don't want to ruin Lucy's night, but I sure. know that she's somebody who, if she uh, knew who Brian Singer was, she'd be like, oh, well, she's I can't like she's watch had this. a hard time listening yeah. to Michael Jackson. Sure. Recently, yeah, it's right? hard. It's hard now. Like it comes on and it just bums her out, and yeah. so I was just sort of like, well, I'll let her finish the movie and then I'll tell, her, I'll talk about it later. Yeah, yeah. Tell her tomorrow. Um, but I think he's, yeah, I think he, he made a lot of bad choices, but I think that he actually just, like, I've never seen one of his movies and thought, oh, the acting was good, yeah. even with actors that I like or who are, are unquestionably professional. So sure. I can't imagine he got great performances out of those people. I well, think the yeah. all the performances are being built in the editing room, and which is why it cuts back and forth between seven people 400 times yeah. in half a minute and i guess that's what i meant by the coverage is i not like it was inadequate coverage they clearly shot everything but it feels oh like God. it feels like they're like okay uh in this take we have this sentence and then this other sentence 40 seconds later so what if we cut back out to the wide and then we jump in over it? you know what i mean it just feels like it's super piecemeal Ugh, but but anyway, so the conversation won an Academy Award, so we're yeah. Well, bad but that at was movies. the conversation yeah. I was just having with Lucy. Is that not only did it win an Academy, not only was it massively popular, sure. huge hit, sure. Uh, you know, nominated for many Academy Awards and won some of them. Uh, but like people we know who aren't stupid, yes, saw it in the theater and then told us like, "Oh, you got to see it. It's so it's amazing." And we're just trying to figure out how does that happen. And it's, but it's also, I feel like that's a special case because you, it might be people judging it on, oh, it's kind of like I got to see Queen for a minute, you know? And it, sure. and we all love Queen and we all love Freddie Mercury. So on that, on that level, it is successful-ish, right? You like get to see people who kind of look like those people pretending to be those people. 
I did say that if I cared particularly about Queen, mm-hmm. that maybe my reaction would be different. Sure. Um, but I don't. But but the thing is that you and I can still watch it, and you know, you you have a deep love for Queen, and I for have sure. a a uh, respectful affection, <laughs> sure, at the very least for for some of their better songs. And for Freddie Mercury in particular, of, of course, course. Of Lucy course. and I was saying, Lucy also said you know, she doesn't particularly care about Queen, but Freddie Mercury is one of the greatest performers who ever lived, which seems objectively that's, correct. Yeah, that's a reasonable opinion to have. Um, but we can still watch that and be like, wow, this movie's bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, maybe I'll enjoy being in Queen's, fake Queen's presence for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that would be enough for me to carry the film, but I would still... Or like it was like when I watched, uh, I went to see Straight Outta Compton. It was a bad movie, yeah. But there were some fun scenes of like, oh yeah, I get to pretend I'm in the recording booth, you know, when they're yeah singing. But like, but that's to me that's different than yeah. coming back and saying that was a great movie, sure. and I agree that it should be up for an Academy Award. And I'm not saying that those people are are dumb or wrong or whatever. Like, like I said, smart people, people I know, people I like. Um, but I do think it speaks to this issue that we have been now circling a few times and that seems to be dominating <laughs> our discourse, which is that we don't, each in our own way, yes. we don't understand how other people are watching movies. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I wish I, I, wish I got it more. Actually, so. I have two specific examples of this that I want to talk to you in particular about with to you today. Okay. Uh, wh- wh- okay, so one of them um, is a film. It just hit, uh, I don't know, Amazon Prime. I watched it somewhere. It's a thing that it played, I think it did a limited run in theaters at the beginning of the year. And then it just, just hit, I think, Amazon Prime. And both when it was in the theaters and just a couple of days ago... A ton of people who I th- think generally have good taste, who I am uh, internet connected to, uh, uh, were like, oh, this movie's amazing. Everyone should go see it. I don't know why you all skipped it. It's, this, it's a movie called Serenity. It's not the uh, what's-his-name who pretends he likes women <laughs> guy movie. Uh, it's uh, it's a, <laughs> Josh, Josh Whedon? Yeah, it's not the Josh Whedon movie. It's a different movie. Sorry, sorry, Josh Whedon. I, Josh, I, I, right. I always get that wrong. Yeah, yeah, Josh Whedon. Uh, not him. It's someone else's movie. Um, I, I am familiar with this movie. Okay. Just so you know, but but you should explain it for anybody have, listening. Have you watched it? No. Okay. All right. Well, you may be surprised. Uh, so there. So it's it's a movie that a lot of people who I'm friends with on the internet who and and know in real life. I just interact with them mostly on the internet. Uh, went gaga over, and it sort of presents itself in the trailer. I'm going to spoil everything. So if you want to watch it before you hear me say things, because you're that kind of a uh, film watcher, no, then you I should... No, I don't care. Uh, I, I meant more the audience. Uh, oh. <laughs> then you should pause us uh, and come back. Jason, you can I don't pause. care, Jim. There's no pausing me. Um, it's So it presents itself as sort of the ideal version of, uh, of Jaws 5, you know, where, if you recall in Jaws 4, they... Uh, they realize that not only do sharks hold grudges on people, but sharks communicate those grudges across the whole ocean uh, and and will hold a grudge on your full bloodline. Um, and it feels like, or the way it's presented is, they're like, this is a movie about a man who's out fishing sharks and his ex-wife asks him to kill her current husband uh, using his shark curse. And you're like, that's a great movie. I would watch the hell out of that movie. Um, it would. That's my favorite movie, uh, a Jaws movie where they use the Jaws as a revenge d- device. Beautiful. Uh, it's not that. Um, it is. It's sort of. It's sort of three movies twisted together, and two of them are like pretty good ideas, and the third one's a terrible idea, and none of them is fully realized. It's. There are three moments, two, two or three moments in the film where, as you're watching it, you'll be like, "What are they doing?" oh, I see what they're doing. And I think that's what people are latching on to. Because there are a couple of times when you're watching it, primarily in the middle, 
this character shows up who's been sort of tracking Matthew McConaughey through the film uh, and and keeps missing him. He keeps Matthew McConaughey keeps leaving out on his boat. And this guy's like, ah, shucks, I missed him again. And then he runs into him and he's like, hey, I want to give you a piece of equipment. Uh, I want you to chase the fish. And he like clearly has knowledge that Anne Hathaway, McConaughey's ex-wife, is asking him to kill a man. Um, the, the guy from Zero Dark Thirty, is that right? Who like tortures people? And uh, and looks a lot like one of the friends. Uh, it's that guy. It's her current husband. Uh, and so this guy shows up and he's like, I don't want you to kill that guy. I am the rules. And you're like, oh, what's that mean? Um, and then it sort of <laughs> pans again, out. Again, I, I do know where this is going. Yeah. And I know there's a twist that's about to ruin it. But, yeah. But if still this was just a movie about a shark fisherman. Yeah. Who is noired into a revenge murder plot yeah. via shark. Yes. And then somebody else shows up and s- declares themselves to be the rules. Yeah. Still a great film, right. in At, theory. During, I just wanted to make that note. During this whole scene, I was like, oh, keep it together, movie. Keep it together, movie. It feels like you're about to fall apart. Uh, and it does. But yeah, if that dude was just like a weird guy who worked for a fishing company and showed up at 3 a.m. or something to give McConaughey some equipment and and was just a weirdo, I would... I, I would have been like, ah, these people were correct. This movie is weird and interesting. Albeit very boring. Um, most of the movie is boring. But um, I guess I don't know what, so, I, I, what I want to ask you about it. I, if you'd seen it, maybe we could we could talk more deeply. But it's... Well, for, I mean, I, I, I know enough about it. And I'm actually just looking at the Wikipedia page now, which hmm, is sure. delivering amazing insights. Oh, really? Like the fact that Matthew McConaughey's character's name is Baker Dill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he named himself after Dylan Baker, a high school teacher. That's how she found him. He, he loved, what? Yeah, he loved his math teacher, I think. Oh, Jason. Sure, but he took Dylan Baker and turned it into... <laughs> into Baker Dill. I mean, I guess There's, Baker is already a food term, yeah, but then he yeah. turned the other one also into a food term. Yeah, he was like, it should sound more like I'm a cartoon baker. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Who makes savory biscuits. Anyway. Um... <laughs> who I appreciate and respect sort of brazenly said it was great. Uh, so I, I experienced a lot of people enjoying it, ironically. In fact, I, one, of, one of the most memorable ones was somebody tweeting uh, Anne Hathaway whispering, Daddy is my new sexuality. People that doesn't seem ironic. The, that seems... Well, but I guess, well, I guess... That just seems like you're into, into a thing they think is sexy. For the, for the camp value. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which... Well, I guess, I guess here's... if you really want to dig into camp, there's there's irony in camp, but then part of camp is using irony to be serious, or I don't know. Sure. A lot of people have written a lot on camp, you know, that know more than me. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I, you know, if you want to make a distinction between liking something ironically and liking something for its camp value, you could do that. Um, well, and so certainly people were in, in, appro- approaching it as sort of a, like I said, like a, a camp romp. Uh, I think that's where I'm confused about it because aside from, as I said again, roughly roughly three times in the film uh, w- where something happens and you're like, oh, what? Oh, okay. It's a really boring p- drama. For me, there are films where you're like, oh, things are happening and they are crazy and that is fun for me. But this film... Oh, yeah the things that are happening mostly aren't crazy. It's mostly Matthew McConaughey drinking rum, uh, which could be more fun than it is. Um, and people talking about things. It's, it's just, it's, I would say 95, I don't know how long it is. I'm assuming it's 110 minutes. And I would say 95 of those are just absolutely nothing of interest happening. Um, so for me, that's, I guess I'm not sure what it is. It, so my, my, 
knee-jerk reaction would be then, oh, the people who are saying this movie is super bonkers are people who haven't seen movies who are super bonkers. But a lot of the people who recommended it are people, there's like a couple of video store guys and a programmer and people who, who particularly are interested in movies that go bonkers were saying that this movie is bonkers. And I watched it. I wonder it, if there's deeply unbonkers. I wonder if there's an aspect to it. Now, I, so as much as I am, do know, you know, something about this movie, I haven't actually seen it. Sure, and sure. I wish I had, cause I could at least then, I should have, prepped uh, you. uh, talk to you about the, the tone and the presentation of it. Um, and whether or not I thought it was, you know, weird or, or whatever. Um, the story certainly sounds boring. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wonder if there's something to it being like a, a big movie. Like I know it's not the, it's not the biggest movie in the world. It, it's sure. It, you know, it is like on, on the scale choices. of big movies. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, fairly low budget. Of course. But it has beautiful movie stars in it. Yeah, and it's going to be in you know it it it's it's paid to to look like a real movie. So I I wonder if there's some aspect to it of you know for the video store guys. Uh, I don't say that pejoratively at all. I no no, no they're heroes. <laughs> that's those, those are my people. Yeah. Um. You know that you can watch all kinds of uh, genuinely low budget and no budget movies that are way more bonkers Mm -hmm. than something like this, but you don't often get to see these beautiful celebrities in a relatively well budgeted film do stuff that is just like a little off the map in terms of what you would normally see in uh, a high class movie. I guess that's true. So on, on the one hand, uh, it could just be that people see a movie with movie stars in it yes. that has some money behind it, yes. and it does a little bit of weird things, and then that's exciting. That's enough, Which I yeah. can understand. Sure. The other thing that is possible is that this movie might genuinely deviate from the norms of like scene construction and dialogue presentation mm-hmm. in ways that you specifically... <laughs> would not read as mistakes or wrong so much as just different choices. Because uh, when we were talking about Tommy Wiseau's The Room, uh, you were making it very clear that it didn't seem that weirdly shot or constructed to you. It just seemed kind of like a dull drama. And that movie is very strangely constructed <laughs> if what you're used to doing is reacting to normal movies. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, yeah, but so then there's, there's this semi-twist, which they sort of showed you at the very beginning of the movie where the whole movie is a computer simulation that McConaughey's son has programmed where he gets to get his dad to murder his stepdad. Uh, At at which point you're like, oh, I don't care. Um, None of this matters. Um, Anne Hathaway's performance seems weird until you realize she's part of a terrible computer program. Uh, Right. I mean, that that twist nullifies any weirdness, right? That's one of the worst things about a twist like that. Yeah. You're like, oh, all of the choices we made don't matter. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate mistake that every movie like that makes, like uh, the game or Inception yeah. or whatever. Uh, any of those other ones where they just tell you, "Hey, everything that's happening isn't happening." It's like, and you're like, "Yeah, that's already true because it's a movie." So yeah, exactly. you just removed me even farther. You don't need to double down. But also, it's not even like the classic. Oh, it was all a dream. Where it happens at the end of the movie, they do it roughly in the middle. They're like, hey, this is all a dream. And you're like, oh, okay. I, I guess I'll Great. keep watching anyway. Uh, but why? There was a, a story my professor was telling me about a filmmaker who was doing... He was an independent filmmaker who uh, was finally had a little bit of money for a project and was working with a union crew, working with like real genuine film crew people who had done lots and lots and lots of them. Mm-hmm. 
um, as opposed to just before where he would work with whoever was around and he'd just throw it together and it was just a bunch of people, you know, making the movie. And he was trying to create a sequence that was, you know, for want of a better term, just really weird. Um, There were just weird things happening that weren't entirely motivated by, you know, standard plot or, or standard sort of like volitional character elements. And he couldn't get the crew to do what he wanted because mm-hmm. everybody just kept coming up to him and saying, well, this doesn't make sense. And that doesn't work. Well, what about this and this? And you're not going to present this this way. And like, this won't cut together like that and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And they just kept coming at him about why it didn't make sense. And he finally just told them all, well, it's a drug trip. He's on drugs. <laughs> and then they were like, like, Oh, okay, oh! Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they did everything he asked exactly how he asked. And when he finally put the movie together, there was no drugs. It was just the scene. And that like, man was David to Lynch. To get them to beat sure. down all of the the normal choices that they've been trained to make. Sure. And I think audiences react very similarly. Uh, or, or Anyway, the connection being, of course, that when you are just having weird things happen, to me and to you, that's much more enjoyable than if they then go on to explain why those weird things were happening. You're like, okay, well, it was much more charming when... Yeah, I'd much rather see an interesting choice than than have someone spend eight minutes justifying their ability to make an interesting choice. Who cares? It was like when we were watching that Zach Galifianakis movie, The Imagineers. Oh, yeah. And for the first half, we were just so high on it. Yeah. Because they would have scenes that didn't make any sense. Yeah, it was really delightful. Where he'd be watching television, and the announcer would just come on and go, are you a tunt? Do you want to be? And then it would cut. And then didn't mention it. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) You're like, hooray, what a great movie. Yeah, so then like halfway through, they explain everything that's going on in laborious detail and garbage. But, you know, I, I live for those first moments. The most interesting choice in the whole movie of Serenity, um, and this is the the thing that kind of won me over for a little while, was it's maybe 10 or 15 minutes in, uh, Matthew McConaughey has, I think he just had sex with Diane Lane, and he's like about to go swimming, and he's walking, I don't know, 200 feet towards a cliff while taking his clothes off so he can jump into the water off the cliff, right? Super normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they shoot him from... Uh, two or three camera angles that are all roughly the same. It's just a camera walking behind him, and then a camera about two feet away walking behind him, and crossfade back and forth between the two shots, and it is completely insane. That's The rest of the movie, I was like, okay, you're making, okay, I get what you're doing. That one sequence is so bonkers, I don't get it. It, it, it made me both delighted and angry at the same time. Boy, that's the kind of thing that, again, you're going to notice, or like you and I can talk about the insane editing in Bohemian Rhapsody, but most people, I, and God love them, and, and it should be this way, <laughs> really, probably, are not going to notice it. They, they must feel it subconsciously. They must. I mean, they feel something. They feel jump cut. Like, in that, what you're describing there, they'll feel like the jump cuts, but I think they'll feel probably what the filmmaker intends them to feel, which is just like a little bit off kilter and a little bit like in motion and a little bit excited. Well, that's but why I couldn't... they're going to process it for the for the event information, which is what's happening. Yeah, camera move. Camera move. It feels like the opening of Wayne's World when he's doing camera one, camera two. It just it moves slightly. Um, yeah, and I I didn't most of the time when a when a filmmaker is doing something where you're like uh, I see you're trying to put me a little off kilter when you you know you're if you're like thinking about it that way you're like ah, i see what you're doing and this particular choice i was like i have no idea why why they're doing this yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know what they're trying to achieve i guess i and yeah and maybe it's an issue of how you're reading it right because for me this feels like a slicked up less interesting version of a sort of pulpy shark shark murder movie that's interrupted by it becoming a sort of third tier matrix film idea uh, or like again all of that are still sounds better than i think this movie probably is yeah yeah and i think yeah i think if you went all out with any of that it would be great but it's it's overwhelmingly just kind of treading water uh waiting to get to the next 
It's just not that, I don't know. Right, well, because one of two things is probably happening here, right? You either have a, a brighter director who, you know, a filmmaker who wants to make something genuinely interesting. Yes. But either by cynical choice or just mind colonization <laughs> uh, keeps tamping it down and directing it more towards what's, quote, normal. And so you get this thing that's neither fish nor fowl. Yeah, kind um, of. Or you have somebody who's genuinely just trying to make a normal movie, but is weird. Yeah. And can't help but do these other things in the in the pursuit. So it, it basically, it's are they trying to do something interesting? Right. And ending up more like main, you know, midstream uh, normal than they intend to. Or are they trying to make a movie, you know, for audiences? They're trying to make a hit movie. They're trying to make a, a movie that people will like, but they just keep getting sidetracked into these little cul-de-sacs. And maybe it doesn't matter, and maybe there's no way to ever really know. Sure. But I, I tend to be more interested by... Well, you know what? I was about to say I'm, I <laughs> was more interested in one that, one over the other, but actually both of them uh, can be really fun and fascinating depending yes. on on how it goes and, and what the what the actual moves are. Agreed. There's also, honestly, the most interesting aspect of the film is that the the reason the kid wants McConaughey to kill uh, the the guy who isn't one of the friends is, uh, is because he is abusive, which they state in the movie, but the only way that's ever presented in the movie is there are a few times you see him with Anne Hathaway doing what, by all appearances, is consensual S&M. She never indicates to him that she's not interested in it, and at one point she, like, grabs his hand and puts it on her throat and tells him to choke her. So it seems like, from the film, it doesn't go into this, and it's hard to know if it's trying to, uh, it seems like maybe the kid is misinterpreting their rough sex as him being abusive and wants to kill him. And so that's a little interesting, but still the whole movie takes place in a fake computer simulation, so it's it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I'm also seeing that this turkey was written and directed by Stephen Knight, which is distressing. We can return to that in a minute. Do we know but Stephen? You I I well, I I he did um a few things okay. that were not bad. Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, he wrote Eastern Promises for Cronenberg. Oh, okay. And he wrote Dirty Pretty Things, which was, if memory serves, mostly a good movie. Okay, all right. Um, pause. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted the space to cut that out if I chose to. <laughs> It seems like maybe this was, like, two sort of pet project ideas that he couldn't get off the ground and wove together or something. Uh, I I don't know. I, I would oh, believe I, I don't think so. I, I, I'm willing to bet. Yeah. And this is, this is with no actual information. Sure. Uh, but just based on my relationship as a writer to ideas. Sure. I'm willing to bet that this whole thing including the multiple twists, mm-hmm. including the, all that stuff, has is what was his baby for a while. Yeah. I'm willing to bet that he was nursing that. I bet he tried to get anyone else to mind. direct it, and nobody would. Well, I... He, or you think he's been holding I, I on to this I, one? I, you think he's been I selling these promises? Been this selling dirty, pretty things, and he's before. like, Ooh. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be, what, 50s, 60s? I bet he's old enough that he's like, computers, they're magic, right? And, <laughs> and sort of went from there. I mean, to be fair, I'm a little bit that old. Yeah, yeah, we both were on the I mean, I'm not 50. A, a 28-year-old but... couldn't have written this. Like, a 23-year-old can't even watch it. But a man older <laughs> than we are could definitely be like, oh, yeah, 
you know what doesn't make any sense and could probably control us is a computer. It's also, it's sort of the least interesting. I bet he, like, heard about Elon Musk saying that we mostly likely live in a, uh, uh, what do you call it, simulation, and he was like, whoa, that's crazy, I'm going to use that, you know? I bet he was really yeah. excited about it. And I think he probably thinks he's saying something really poignant, um, but he's not in that movie. Well, what what was most interesting to me when I first heard about this movie, or I guess mm-hmm. when I eventually heard what the movie actually was about, when sure, I first fair. heard about it, it was literally just people talking about how many times Anne Hathaway whispers daddy. Um, <laughs> and also, I guess there's just a scene early on, you could confirm or or Maybe. deny this, where Diane Lane keeps asking Matthew McConaughey to find her pussy. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that, yeah, I that's mean, like a weird running gag that never lands. I mean, it sounds like a good try, though. Kind of. It's like a good try for an eighth grader. I don't know, man. I guess it's a good try <laughs> in the context of having it be Diane Lane and Matthew McConaughey, which takes yes. me back to that idea that, like, yes. if this was just some nobody's in a movie, it wouldn't matter. But if you were in a position to make movie stars do ridiculous things and yeah. you do it, then yeah. you're a little bit of a hero. I'm on board with that. I'm fully on board with that. Um but so so the the one thing that I thought maybe again if it was genuinely explored and handled with subtlety and depth which I never expect any movie to do no of course um is is there a part where uh Matthew McConaughey becomes aware that he's a computer program yeah yes yeah the whole second half of the movie yeah so that could be something. Yeah, but he doesn't. It doesn't turn into like uh, Lucy. Not Lucy, Lucy, but Lucy the film uh, star. Yeah, no, I've know. seen that. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't like or, or like the Matrix for that matter. It doesn't turn into. He just gets mad at everyone else. He's just like, ah, yeah. this is fake. You don't know it, but it's fake. And they're like, okay. <laughs> but like, yeah, but the fact that he knows it is weird and has a lot of implications that you could have a lot of fun with honestly the most interesting part is that it's sort of playing with the idea like oh what if we lived in a simulation but it's specifically a simulation that was programmed by his son um which is a super weird thing well we jim we do live in a simulation programmed by his son by dying on the cross (laughs) oh right right sorry um (laughs) (laughs) he he programmed our sins away (laughs) Yeah, um, but, but yeah, but it's like he he knows the person who made him, you know, and that feels like maybe a thing to play with. But they don't really; they just they're just like ooh pathos, and you're like, it's not pathos; it's it's the seed of something weird. But or like, yeah, does the kid successfully recreate his father's consciousness in a computer program? Because that's a very different thing than just creating a computer program that you name dad. You know, I don't, they don't go into whether it's like Tron rules or not, <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the if guy, just... when he shows up and says he's the rules, he doesn't say I am Tron rules. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He says I am the rules and he doesn't, ex- he's like, you're like, is this a Wreck-It Ralph rules? Is it Tron rules? I, it's not, it's never specified whether, uh, they're actually conscious things th- that uh, that a child made or whether they're or whether like all computer programs are conscious or like whether i don't know they don't go into any of that they, it's which also kind you know, of a funny joke that i don't know if stephen knight intended to have somebody show up and say i am the rules mm-hmm. in that if you've if you ever play a computer game where like you're wandering around and talking to people half the time the people that you talk to are so on the rails in terms of the program to say that they <laughs> yeah. are basically just saying, I'm the rules. Yeah, yeah, they're just giving you guidelines to get to the other Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell if he's, I don't know, it's hard to tell how savvy he is to video games based on this movie. I'm due for a rewatching of Eastern Promises, but that's mm. one of those late Cronenbergs which has a lot of good stuff in it, and then some stuff where it's like, is this? Did you mean to do this, or is this just normal? Like, this feels weirdly normy. You know that's what I mean? Interesting. I should rewatch Eastern Promises also. I honestly, in my brain, it and History of Violence are, are inextricably fused, and so I should probably watch them each separately 
for once. Or not. I mean, I think they can stay fused, I think. Or at least, I mean, watching them and comparing them to each other is also useful. Yeah. Because you get a little bit of a sense of what's Cronenberg, what's Stephen Knight, what's Josh Olsen. <laughs> Although Josh Olsen is a huge Cronenberg fan and oh, purposefully wrote part of his script without without guidance from Cronenberg. Purposely, mm-hmm. once he found out Cronenberg was going to be writing, was going to be directing the movie, he added in scenes... Oh, that's interesting. ...that were Cronenberg-y because, to challenge himself to see if he could write scenes... That's funny. ...that then people would watch the movie and be like, oh, Cronenberg must have added that. Right, right. Uh, which I just, I like that he did that. I would love to be writing himself. for literally any director. <laughs> Full stop. And getting paid. Yeah. Um. You, yeah, you would just <laughs> like to be employed. Yeah, I would like to have a job. I But... I, if I were ever in a position where I were writing for another director who was, like, known at all, it'd be fun to throw in, like, three or four beats that are just super out of character with the rest of the script in any way and have people be like, whoa, it's weird that that person would have added that twist in there, you know? Yeah. What a strange beat that clearly the director added. You just add... Like, you just and then you leave your script without those beats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This has been, uh, I think, another episode of Synesthesia. Yeah, that's an episode. Uh, a movie we named after a, a neuroatypical condition. Yeah. A podcast, not a movie. Whatever. A podcast about movies in general. Maybe about other stuff. I don't know. Um, mainly movies. Mainly movies is the thing that we can talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, you're, you're a filmmaker. I'm a film scholar. And we can just we can talk from both ends of the candle. That's the saying, right? You talk. Yeah, you hold, we, Let's we talk, hold a candle. Talk all night from both ends of this candle. <laughs> we hold a candle in our mouths with it lit in the middle. Yeah, and then we and kiss we when we get there. We get burned. Yeah, 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 like Lady and the Tramp. Um, yeah, smooches. Smooches. I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> oh goodness. Synesthesia is produced by Iguana Donald Studios and distributed by Split Tooth Media. Featuring music by The Cocktails, courtesy of Tideship Records. Additional music by Mr.'s Presidents. Theme music by Soft Healer. Synesthesia is recorded live before a live studio audience of live eels. Consult your doctor before listening to Synesthesia. Do not operate vehicles or heavy machinery while under the influence of this podcast. Oh. Oh no. Turn. Turn. Break. Look out. Oh bitter tragedy. I don't care, Jim. There's no pausing me.